Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to We Dig Plants on Heritage Radio Network. We are Groundworks Inc. I'm Alice Marcus Krieg. And I'm Carmen DeVito. And we design, install, and maintain gardens in and around New York City. In our aim to bring the culture to horticulture, today we're embarking upon a series, a new series, um, for the next couple of weeks called Heritage and Horticulture. It's uh, topics that specifically relate horticulture and the United States, our founding, our economics, and our culture. So this will be a four-part series for now, and we hope to expand it into future projects. Yes, and there's going to be some really interesting topics. Today's topic um, is going to be about the first ever commercial nursery in the United States, Prince's Nursery from Flushing, Queens. And then the second part of the series, um, the next show will be our President's Day show, and we're going to have a discussion about our founding fathers, their favorite plants, a little bit about their gardens, because uh, you know the, the founding gardeners were, were really into plants and gardens and farming. Um, and then we're going to look at, come back to New York and kind of pre-New York, look at New Amsterdam mm-hmm. uh, with author Russell Shorto and his award-winning book, The Island in the Center of the World. And then finally, um, our personal favorite will be about the plants that came back from the Lewis and Clark expedition. So in this election year, right, we are going to be Americans, <laughs> <laughs> all of us, and talk about what matters. We the plant people. We the plant people, <laughs> right. <laughs> so we thought we'd start right here in New York City. Um, with the first commercial nursery in the United States. It's called Prince's Nursery, and it was in Flushing, Queens. Sadly, it is no longer in existence, but the property has evolved into what is now the Queens Botanical Garden, and we have two representatives from the QBG with us today. Welcome Susan Lassert and Chuck Wade. Uh, Susan is the current executive director, and Chuck Wade is the former executive director of the garden. And um, they're going to be here to talk about Prince's history and how it evolved into the current botanic garden. It's a very interesting story. So when we first learned that the commercial plant nursery was located in New York, I became so excited and hooked on the idea of early horticultural history because I I strangely think, I often wonder daily about what life was actually like in Dutch New Netherland and in the early colonies. 
I often think about the dailiness of life, what people ate and what they drank and how they worked and how they slept and how they stayed warm. And if and when they went to school, how did they get to school and how they engaged in the community and how they walked through the streets. And the more I learn about New York City as an epicenter of early horticulture, the more fascinated I become. So that's what this series is going to kind of spawn from... New York. Yes, New York and history. living in New York all these years and walking those same cobblestone streets every day. You can't ignore it. You can't ignore it. I mean, Alice and I, sometimes you turn a corner and you see, oh, there was there's a plaque that said something from 1720 or, or 1620. And right. you, you can't help but think about it. If you pause for a minute and you stand there, or you go down to the battery, uh-huh. right? And you think about, you know, that there were people, that there were Dutchmen 400 years ago standing there right. and farming and bowling. Right. And, you know, right. it's just... You, and you, drinking. Yeah, and drinking. <laughs> you can't escape it. So it's a wonderful connection between horticulture and New York and American history. Right. And I think most of us understand that Queens and Brooklyn were farming communities in the early 1700s. So they really revolved around the city. Um, it was, you know, it's it's a natural extension, of course. And to think of a commercial nursery in these communities selling plants for working gardens and for medicinal purposes is another layer of fascination. So I'm going to put a little timetable and a setting in place. So Brooklyn and Queens comprised mostly of German, Flemish, French, and English heritage, French Huguenots. Um, They were subsistence farmers. It's the time frame of the Dutch West India Company. Ben Franklin was born in 1706. Tea was introduced into the United States in 1714. Ben Franklin established libraries in 1730. In 1732, George Washington was born. In 1718, the French established New Orleans, and the first slaves were brought to the United States in 1725. So exploration and trading... (coughs) are the driving force behind this, right? And that means plants, because what were they hunting for and where were fortunes to be made? So, you know, there's European wars going on, war between France, England, and Spain. You know, there's a lot of cultural, um, religious wars going on. And, you know, it's just an amazing time in history. And meanwhile, there's this... There's this commercial nursery in the middle of this farmland in Queens. So that's what we're going to talk about, Prince's Nursery. It was established in 1737 by Robert Prince, and the first catalog of trees and woody plants came out in 1771. And this is a catalog of plants that is happening as the Boston Massacre is happening. So just to put a timetable on it, it's an amazing setting. So here's the first commercial and mail-order nursery on U.S. soil, the selling of plants and trees and fruits. The business closes around around 1865, which is right after the Civil War, when the son, William Robert, moves the retail business into the medicinal uh, botany industry. So let's talk a little bit about Prince's Nursery. Um, Chuck. Yes. Tell us a little bit about Prince's Nursery from your perspective as the former executive of uh, Queen's Botanic Garden. Well, Prince's Nursery was, uh, first of all, 
went along what we call Northern Boulevard today, uh-huh. and it went down to Flushing Landing. Uh-huh. Now, Flushing Landing was the place for ships and barges to come in from Manhattan, and they came about eight to ten times a day, uh-huh. bringing things into Flushing for the Prince family, right. because they put out a notice to all ship captains that they would like to get any seeds, plants, science, and other plant material from around the world from those ship captains that were coming in from all over the world into Manhattan. Right. And so they put their notice out, and they said, if you mark your plant, uh, your shipment or your bundle, uh, Prince uh-huh. Flushing Landing, we will receive it. So, and so they came. It's yeah. so amazing to think that here's this, you know, this is really an entrepreneur, right? Very, Mr. Very, Prince. I think he's very ahead of his time, actually, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. He's yeah. very, very cutting edge. While most people were still, were very much subsistence farming, he's like, I can sell. Right. I How can, are they going to get the plant material that they want? That they need, you know? So this wasn't gardening as far as like foundation plants for your house this was real necessity so it was it was and it was it was material right chuck that went that was going back and forth from america to england and from england into the united states yes right you know flushing was actually more of a english town than the new amsterdam uh-huh. it was sort of a of the line uh, Peter Stuyvesant put his uh, influence over into Flushing, mm-hmm. and the Bowne family, B-O-W-N-E, uh-huh. they were very, very well-known as Quakers uh-huh. in Flushing. Uh-huh. And so, therefore, their house, 1661, is still in existence, mm-hmm. and so uh, they were right in the middle of all this farming that so, was going on. So tell me, what happened to the um the mr prince's house right let's talk a little bit about some new york history and what happened to the house in the original um orchard and and house and farmland well his house was still in flushing up to the time of the new york world's fair in 1939 uh-huh. and uh <clears throat> it stayed there at the foot of Flushing Landing. It was actually at the beginning of the Prince Nursery, uh-huh. which was later called the Linnaean Botanic Garden, right. by the way. But the Prince Nursery uh, uh, family lived in this homestead. They had in the lobby of their home a bust of Linnaeus mm-hmm. because they honored him greatly, the great Swedish botanist. Uh-huh. And they, they abided by... Uh, the uh, nomenclature that he established for uh, organizing the plant world. Uh-huh. And so they even listed their plants in their catalog under his name. Right. Now, the house should have been a national shrine, uh-huh. as we know. Uh, the <laughs> garden clubs uh, of Flushing and other eminent groups said to Mr. Robert Moses, please, Mr. Moses, let us retain this house let us preserve it because it was going to be demolished because the flushing bridge was being built over toward manhattan mm-hmm. uh, across over the flushing river uh-huh. where we have now house city core stadium uh-huh. but uh th- they wanted to get this house uh saved and they even had a proposal to put it on land at flushing meadow corona park and just just so our listeners know moses was the urban planner um, extraordinaire. Yeah. <laughs> who really? Let's use that word. <laughs> who really? Um, 
kind of designed the New York that we know today. Um, and he, he built the highways and Beachy, you know, beaches, there's a lot of, yeah. yeah, the beaches, there's a lot of controversy about, about him, yes. but he really laid out the roadways as they currently are. So yes. in doing so, he bulldozed this house yeah, and sure. it's gone off with their heads. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, because we have, I have no time for this, but it's a, it's a shame, really. Yeah. I wish it could have been moved over and boarded up, if if nothing more, and right, then saved right. later. Right. Yeah. So the Prince's Nursery, Susan, tell us a little bit about um, some of the early plants we've, we've been talking. Well, um, Prince Nursery was in existence when the United States wasn't in existence. Right. So I think that's really significant, 1737. Right. And they, the Prince Nursery was known as the source for so many things. There were Chuck and I were talking in the car on the way over how many different kinds of um, apples they have. How many is that, Chuck? 450 varieties. Right. Of apples. Right. Because apples. Yeah. when we were doing our master plan for the garden, um, the one of the botanists working with us really was so charmed. And he said that, that, you know, there are apples that are good for canning, apples that are good for stewing, apples that are good for right. eating. And so the Prince family, they really knew all of this. Uh-huh. And, and they were the source for so much for so many people. Right. And when you go down to uh, Monticello uh-huh. in um, Virginia, uh-huh. uh, Jefferson's um, place, you see that he got plants from the Prince Nursery, Flushing, Long Island. Right. <laughs> and let, let's talk for a second, though, about about Prince's Nursery during the Revolution, right? Because the Battle of Brooklyn was occurring, <clears throat> mm-hmm. and the First Continental um, American Organized American Army was battling. Mm-hmm. And General Howe, the British general, actually kind of barricaded the nursery to protect it because I would imagine the British really thought of the nursery property and the products on the nur- the plants as theirs, so they did not want any harm to come to this to this piece of property because these plants were actually under British law, at and they that were time. valued, and they were and valued, valued, right, valued. right, because this is what we were fighting for. This this is the uh, you know this is the American ethos, right? Right, and I've heard this from Chuck, who heard it from Jack Eichenbaum also, who's the Queen's historian, is that the plants came first and the people followed. <gasps> yeah, yes. And exactly. you think about it, we all eat. This is what unifies yeah. us, even to this day. Right. And Queens is one of the most ethnically diverse places in the entire world, really. Right. And we see this every day. It's the food and food comes from plants that unifies. Right. So Jefferson, Madison and Washington were big um, clients, customers of the Prince's Nursery. And Adams came with and them, Adams, too. Exactly. Yeah. And Ben Franklin. And, yeah. you know, all the early kind of American horticulture masters. Um, and, you know, it was it was these plants that really spawned the ideology of our Constitution and, and you know, our kind of theory about ourselves as a democracy. And there's also, you're asking about plants. I've, um, in the last maybe eight, nine months, become friendly with Steve Castles. Uh He has a book that just came out, Grapes of the Hudson Valley. Right. And he talks about the early breeders. That's how his book is different. Uh And so that you can understand their work because people were trying to solve different sorts of problems or issues as we do today. Right. And so he actually has some of the things. He writes about it, but he also grows grapes and he has some of his grapes have Prince Nursery stock, if you will. Yeah. So it's very exciting. And Steve also says an interesting thing. He says, like, like people, there are no pure grapes. They're all hybrids. <laughs> right. 
And, you know, we're all hybrids. If yeah. you come down to it, we are. Yeah. In Flushing and Queens, this is what we're all about. Yeah. This is what America is about. And this right. is the strength because Chuck has a story about France and and how the grapes were. Well, uh, over in uh, uh, Jefferson lived in France, and uh-huh. he appreciated the French cuisine and so on very much. And so he was interested in, in having grapes grown in America. Now, the Prince family, they were growing grapes uh, and distributing grapes that were from Europe, the Euro- uh-huh. U- European wine grapes. Mm-hmm. So he had well over 50 to 100 varieties of that, but they also had the American grape, uh-huh. the Vitus vinifera. And the, they were not considered so great for wine, but we think of, of many of them as the Welch's grape juice kind of grape, uh-huh. uh, which was from the Concord grape, but other varieties of grape too. But the thing about it is that the American grape saved the wine industry of Europe. Mm-hmm. Yes. The, and that was Prince's Nursery. That was Prince's Nursery. Phylloxera was attacking the grapevines of Europe and killing all those wine grapes. And that's a disease, by the way. Right. Yes. Listeners. Yeah. And right. so they, they were uh, able to learn to, that the American vitus vinifera was resistant to this disease. Mm-hmm. So they could graft the the wine grapes of Europe onto the rootstock of the American grape, and it could grow in the European uh, soils okay. Right. So we basically, Americans, and we've talked about this before, Americans, Americans saved the French wine industry, the European wine industry. It literally did. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, you know, another prince plant is the, the sugar maple trees. You want to talk a little bit about that? That was kind of <laughs> Jefferson's ideology. Thomas Jefferson knew the triangle that was going on uh-huh. in the slave trade, and then the the sugar would be picked up, and then would be brought over and traded for slave. It was awful, but it was being done. It's history. Right. Jefferson was looking for an alternative to sugar supply because uh-huh. he said, we don't want to depend upon that supply of sugar. So he knew that the sugar maple in New England mm-hmm. was wonderful, grew up into Canada, was wonderful. He had all of the the available sugar maples, Acer Saccharum. Mm-hmm. He had it brought down to uh, Monticello, and he planted a whole grove of sugar maples down there. Mm-hmm. He took all the stock from Prince that he could get. Uh-huh. And so it's a little far south for the sugar mm-hmm. maples. Yeah, sure. They didn't flourish there too well, but he up to our lifetime, right. there was one or two of the those maples still growing at Monticello. Right, right. But he wanted to get see if if this would be an alternative for the sugar supply. Uh huh. Exactly. Yeah. And another thing that came through Prince's Nursery is the first um, propagation of the native pecan trees. Wonderful. You know, and yeah. I mean, Prince was really the epicenter of um, American hort as we as we know it today, and it's all New York. You know? and, and I've heard Chuck say for years that Flushing is the birthplace of horticulture in America. It is. It is. <laughs> it's true. It is. So, so, so we, we know that the house is gone, right, mm-hmm. unfortunately. But tell us how the land became transformed, transformed into the QBG. And we're not on the exact 
land. But when you were very nearby, like a stone's throw, if you have a good arm. <laughs> <laughs> if you're one of the Mets. <laughs> my, my son could do it. <laughs> but um, there's a Prince Street in Flushing, and it's uh-huh. very well known in the um, Chinese community in particular. But um, we're on property that's right near, and there was the Parsons Nursery, too, that came. There was a whole lot of growers in this area because, of course, it was away from the center. Uh-huh. And so Queen's Botanical Garden came into existence after the 1939 World's Fair. Uh-huh. And there was an, a garden there. And World's Fairs are a lot about innovation. And so Jackson and Perkins Roses started their mail order business in a big way after that. And um, um, hydroponics was showcased growing plants in water. And um, after the fair, a group of local people associated with the Long Island Press kept the garden going. And then in the 1940s, we legally came into existence and then were moved by Robert Moses again to make way for the 64 fair. (laughs) But anyway, I mean, I think the theme for me about World's Fairs and this whole area is about innovation. And that's something Prince was about. Now, another story um, that Steve told me from his book, and by the way, it is available at Flint Mine Press. um, And I highly recommend you look it up because it's got a lot of history in it. But is also that um, people, Prince was one of the first to start naming plants because at that time, and um, Carmen was telling us about her father and how he has this great vine and he just gives people cuttings all the time. He's, she's going to give some to Chuck. <laughs> but um, people would just sell their plants. And so to, to really sell plants farther, you needed a catalog, so you needed names. Right. And so, so Prince and others at that time were the, among the first. And what's very interesting, too, is this is the same time, 1737, is when Linnaeus, mm-hmm. who created what they call the binomial system of nomenclature, so Acer rubrum, red maple, two names that help you know, just like my name is Susan Lassert, but it's in reverse. And so they were the ones that were doing that. That's innovation. Uh-huh. You know, so we have a lot of innovation here in this part of the world. Right, right. It's New York. It's New York, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, some, some other things that have come out of out of Queens is it's it's a lot of fruits and native um, nuts and um, gooseberries and raspberries and strawberries. Um, it's all the kind of subsistence things that one would need. Um, but a lot of the Lewis and Clark plants came into uh, commerce through Prince's, and Prince really was able to sell a bazillion things. His catalog was huge. Yes, and we have some photos. Um, I think the 1835 uh, issue that Chuck brought with us. Alice and I are going to post it on our Facebook page so you can see pages of an actual catalog. Of and these course, are figs from yeah, Italy. Olives. Olives. I noticed that there were yeah. olives. And this is all in Flushing in the seventeen late 1700s. Well, another thing that Steve told me, too, is that the princes probably made a lot of money by people just going to look at all that they had. Right. And that they had greenhouses. And I thought, wow, because botanical gardens in this country didn't happen until the mid-1800s with Missouri Botanical Garden, the New York Botanical Garden, a little later. And so here, it's like a precursor of the Queen's right. Botanical Garden, right. really. The Linnaean Society. Right. Well, isn't it interesting that they named their nursery the Linnaean Botanical Garden. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So, right. but uh, speaking of visitors, you know that George Washington came out there to see the Prince Nursery uh-huh. when he became president. Was seated in New York City first, right? And he came out to Flushing Landing with John Adams, uh-huh. and so they went and they toured the garden and so on 
They also say Washington visited Long Island to uh-huh. thank his spies right. who were out there right. and so on. But he was very busy. He stopped by the garden, and he said, well, I really found the plants there rather trifling. <laughs> 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 Only a Virginia man can say that. <laughs> because he thinks of the, the, the great growing that we have on the plantations of Virginia and so on. But this garden had suffered for 10 years of neglect. It's true. It's During lucky the war. it was still right. there. Yeah. I mean, it was to such an extent that the Prince family was. Uh, some people say that the cherry trees that they grew there were. Uh, they couldn't sell them, so they sold them for barrel hoops. Yeah. Or, or the hoops around women's skirts. <laughs> and so they had to do. They had to think all the time. How are we going to survive? Right. But you know, they introduced the Lombardi poplar to That's America. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we think of it now as a tree that it doesn't live too well. But, you know, I was at Bouchart Garden out in British Columbia this summer, past uh-huh. summer, and I saw the most magnificent Lombardi poplars that were absolutely huge. They, I said, oh, this is the way they're supposed to look. Yeah. And so I said... They they experimented. They planted, as you say, olives and uh, other exotic fruits, figs, and so on, like that. They were all here, uh-huh. and um, and they appreciated flavors and subtleties of mm-hmm. food and fruits. As we hear about all the gourmets today, oh, this apple is superior to that apple because it has such a uh, a, a wonderful flavor of roses and raspberries and so on yeah but they they knew it all i have to also mention because this is how carmen and i met um mr prince william prince was a founding member of the horticultural society of new york which is where carmen and i met and And where i met you also exactly it's so it's really a full circle new york story yeah. of plants right Right. i wonder if prince street in in manhattan is also named after him could yeah, possibly I, be I'm, because if he was good. that prominent, right? You know, it's possible. One other just odd fact that I found when I was doing the research: so Mr. Prince was was friendly with a um, uh, a man named David Hosack, who established the Elgin Botanic Garden in 1801, mm-hmm. and this was the city's original botanic garden which was a series of conservatories and glass houses, which is where Rock, Rockefeller Center is today, in the middle of Manhattan. Right today. Yeah. So how amazing was horticulture in, in early New York history, right? Oh. I mean, you can't you th- ignore it. You think about uh, uh, in the Victorian era how they built the Crystal Palace, and there uh-huh. was a Crystal Palace built in America, too. Uh-huh. Uh, these huge glass conservatories that would have all kinds of exotic trees and birds and all plant life and growing right there that uh-huh. people could walk into a Pennsylvania a, a Station. Tropical, yeah. Right. Pennsylvania Station was a glass enclosed, yeah. you know. Conservatory-esque. Conserv- right. Yeah. There is actually plans to redesign that and yes. get rid of that or, or actually move it over into what is now the um, the, post the post office, office. Ah. right and put the trains in the post office and make a glass ceiling again which mm-hmm. would be oh. that would be very nice lovely yeah <laughs> but a majority of the plants um, at Monticello actually came 
from the prince's nursery. So Jefferson was a big, huge patron of he, the nursery. Yeah, and probably Madison had a great many plants brought over to his place too. Right. Yeah, right. they were all impressed by the prince nursery. Right. It was the place to go. Right. And uh, sometimes it's overshadowed by Bartram down at Philadelphia, and and a lot of people in the uh, south of New York they think oh Bartram was the one, but Prince Prince was absolutely. That family, four generations. Right, almost 150 years, yeah. right. right. And they stemmed back to 1621, uh-huh. Plymouth Colony. Uh-huh. Uh, well, the first governor uh, in uh, the Plymouth Colony was a prince, oh. and they were related. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't realize the lineage went that far back. Yes. Wow. Well, and next year, 2017, is the 280th anniversary of the establishment of the Prince Nursery. And uh-huh. I've been working with uh, Richard Horhan at Queen's Historical, which is a great organization. Uh-huh. And we're hoping to have some events at the garden, like maybe Steve Castle said he'd bring some of his grape-growing friends down, uh-huh. and he would do some talks, and um, we're going to celebrate because, um, yeah. you know, it's one of those geeky things, but I love history, I love plants, and you put it all together, what do you get? Prince Nursery. Exactly. So. Well, we have to take a break. Hang on mm-hmm. one second. You're listening to We Dig Plants on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. Song is Third Degree Rug Burns by Tackstar. This is We Dig Plants. We'll be right back. Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. Hi, we're back. This is We Dig Plants, and we're talking about Prince's Nursery today, the first nursery in the United States. And we're talking with Susan Lesser and Chuck Wade from the Queen's Botanical Botanical Garden. <laughs> um, and we just, before the break, we were talking about the property and um, the kind of segue from Prince's Nursery to Flushing and the QBG as kind of an epicenter for horticulture in America. Tell us a little bit, Susan, about QBG today and the diversity of the people and the garden attendance and all that great, fantastic stuff. Yeah, I love this place. Um, Our garden, Queen's Botanical Garden, we think of it as the place where people, plants, and cultures meet. Yeah. Where people, plants, and cultures meet. And there's so much because people, we all come from some heritage of growing plants or eating plants. And while sometimes newer immigrants 
don't want to do work with plants because it feels like life on the farm and it was hard and whatever lately more people have come back to it and mm -hmm. they want there's the whole local movement and about understanding where your food comes from and growing it and it's really a beautiful thing so we do all sorts of programs at the garden the children's garden that's what chuck hired me for years ago i'm very <laughs> thankful that chuck hired me when i was new <laughs> in my career it's like wow i get paid to do this <laughs> whoa and um but children's garden i mean you know when you you, you work with children when they're young and they take things home and they sh share it with their parents but then a lot of times in queens you have people that don't the parents or grandparents don't speak english and so the children become the great translators and so there's children's garden there's programs for seniors there's tai chi every morning mm -hmm. cliff chin is the head of it and every morning it's a tr traditional use of open space so it's not just food plants but it's it's other uses as well and i think because queens flushing is so densely populated this really becomes an oasis for the whole community and qbg is right in the center of queens so it's like the heart of the borough. Right, because Queens is the most diverse of the New York City boroughs. Can you tell us a little bit about your population? And yes. And of course, with the World's Fair, we were involved with a lot back then, and the borough president of Queens, Melinda Katz, now calls it the World's Borough. Right. Yeah. And it's really true. Our, our number one visitor group are Chinese Americans, about 30, 32%. Mm -hmm. And that's from different parts. You know, there's and there's Cantonese speakers, Mandarin, and other dialects. Then the number two group is Caucasians, about 28%, and about 21% are Hispanic Latino. But of course, that represents many people from many different places like Ecuador and Mexico and Puerto Rico and Argentina, all sorts of places. And then there are smaller populations, African American, Korean, mm -hmm. South Asian, and all of these have many, much diversity within them. And the Queens Botanical Garden, I have to say, has one of the first um, green roofs on yes. a, on a, in the city in yes. the city and so that you know Prince's Nursery was cutting edge Queen's Botanical Garden is also cutting edge it's one of the most beautiful green roofs you can actually walk through it through the meadow yeah. it's a great place um, every time I go I have to walk across that roof because yeah. it's, it's just gorgeous you know? It's about innovation and yeah and also this garden long before my time but th this garden in the early 60s was put in this particular location and it was a time of Rachel Carson and Silent Spring. Yeah. Right. And so there was a real emphasis on bee garden, bird garden, wetland garden and, and these sort of things um, are so important to our lives and um, we, I think that that's the innovation. World's Fairs are about that but also our green roof that we have a lead platinum uh -huh. building. The first one. The, the first, first one. public yeah. in New York. Yeah. And we don't have any oil or gas that's used in our building. None. Right. We have the first um, composting toilets uh -huh. in New York City in our building, which saves between that and the gray water system, which the water from the um, is cleaned, waters from showers and sinks is cleaned and then is used in other ways for flushing the toilets, means that our building uses 82% less water than a conventional building, which is a lot. Mm -hmm. yeah. Every 100 gallons, we're not using 82. But then also the landscapes gather water. So that's about innovation, too. It's about doing things that others haven't done. And I think that's part of the role mm -hmm. of cultural institutions. But it goes back to Prince uh -huh. because he was doing things at that time that others were not doing. Well, he was importing plants from all over the world. Right. And selling them. You know, yes. New York is a, is a commercial city. It's all about sales and market. You know, you, you can't ignore that. And diversity. I mean... Chuck Wade, you came here from the middle of the country, and you ended up running the QBG. You studied horticulture, right? Yes. 
um, in, in... I studied at the University of Missouri. Right. And I got my master's from St. John's here in Queens. Uh-huh. Uh, so my oh. master's was in teaching science and education, okay. secondary school. And then you taught, so you taught science to high school kids, botanical I taught science. at the Agricultural High School in Queens. Right. Which still that exists. second half of my career. Right. Yeah. John Bound High School, Flushing, Queens, uh-huh. Main Street. Yeah. Yes. Prince's Nursery. I yep. wanted, I wanted yeah. to bring up one thing, as Susan. You know, in... As you know, survival is very important for all organizations, especially not-for-profits. They have to think. And so when I was director, I had to think what we have to do uh, that can tie in and bring money. Mm -hmm. And so I established the first wedding garden in America Yes. I did not At know that, Chuck. the Botanical Garden. Wow. Because we had to think of a way that we could t- make the garden. It, c- it could be a beautiful exhibit in the garden, right. a wedding garden. Right. But it could also be used, and the people did come to have their wedding. See, it's it's yeah. economics. It's economics. plants and economics. Yeah. Right? The driving force. Yes, and I can't tell you how many people, I go around town and they have pictures. We're in a lot of photo albums. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of photo All albums. over the world, All probably. Over the world. Yeah. yeah. And All you know, the world. other gardens wouldn't accept that. They right. said, oh, no, we would not have such a thing in our garden. Right. And Brooklyn and New York and the others. Right. They came right later. <laughs> right, yes. Yeah, at that time, at that time, in botanical gardens, it was about the collections and about the education. It wasn't about performances and weddings and things like that. But community cultural. It sentence. is, and it's become right. so important because I say to people, it's one of the most important days of your life, and you're celebrating it at a garden. Right, this right. Is powerful. Right, exactly. And the thing is, I think in New York, because we're such a commercial city and we're all about the market and the economics. There is less and less space, which means less and less plants for people to digest and think and have awareness about their life and their world. And, you know, and as the natural world is shrinking, these public places are becoming more more and more important for for so many urban kids. That might be the only nature they ever see, right, right. Susan? Right. I mean, that they may not ever get to a national park. They may not ever see any place truly wild. Well, one right? of our, our council members, our wonderful council members, Danny Drum, he's um, from Jackson Heights. When I visited him a few years ago, he said it's really important, for the field trips. He says just to get the kids out of the neighborhood so yeah. that they know that there's a bigger world out exactly. there. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, and Prince's Nursery did that. That's yes. what they did. Yes. They imported plants from all over yes. the world. And sold them. And know? think about it. Before there were botanical gardens, there was the the Linnaean Botanical Garden. The right. princes were ahead exactly. of, of these things. They were yes. princes. So is Literally. there, is there um, <laughs> yeah. has anything been formally published about Prince? I mean, is at all a book or a pamphlet or anything? There was some stuff that I found. Um, there's a lot of referencing, but there's, as far as I know, Carmen, no. There hasn't um, been like a formal history or a book. I think that it's time. It's an opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you've got your anniversary coming up. Yes, and we do. It, QBG is yes. really the the front runner for Susan, this. we could collaborate. We could do a book. Yes. Yeah. And with Queen's Flushing. Historical. Yeah. With, yeah. with Steve Castles, because yeah. Steve exactly. knows a lot. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, there was, I found some stuff at the Smithsonian. Mm-hmm. I found some stuff, you know, um, in the National Archives. And, you know, there's lots of referencing. and But mm-hmm. no, there's no, like, 
tome. Yeah, and I, I came to New York. I realized that um, my, my parents were very surprised I ended up in New York City. They avoid it. If they're traveling to Florida. They go around New York City. Uh-huh. But I realized that when I, after I got here that part of what attracts me to New York is the diversity. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what attracts me to plants is I love the stories of rubber and how peppercorns were used as currency and quinine helped cure malaria uh-huh. and things like that. So we have all of that. And it is... Thanks to Prince. Well, and, and the mulberry, way. and the mulberry, and, and the silkworm, and oh, the silkworm. Yeah, yes. <laughs> and that was, and that actually was Prince's nursery. That was probably the demise. Was they invested too heavily in the mulberries? Yeah, at the at, in the late eighteen sixties. They they brought the well, they they had brought many mulberry plants here, but the white mulberry and they imported from France the mulberry that would be principally used for the feeding of the of the silkworm. Uh-huh. But there there is a great deal about that cocoonery uh in the in the history of flushing. Uh-huh. And people uh, uh didn't realize that uh, the, the Manchester, Connecticut. That's the town in Connecticut where the where the uh, the cocoonery or the silkworm industry uh-huh. became primary for a whole town. A right. Whole well, town. that's a textile town, mm-hmm. so yes. that would yeah. make sense. And yeah. that that was yeah. the one where the silkworm. Uh, I think the Cheney family were very uh, okay. important in silk. Yeah. Yeah. And this was, you know, this was this was speculation on behalf of Prince. And, you know, I think at that time, it's the end of the Civil War. And, you know, there was a lot of very strange funding, I'm sure. The landscape was very odd. Um, as you just wrap up a war, it's probably not the time to be investing heavily in silkworm. <laughs> but, you know. Well, maybe they thought... They might have been thinking, who knows, the cotton industry has been kind of decimated. Yes, right. Maybe exactly. people will turn to silk right. as an yeah. alternative, and we won't need slaves right. to right. big plantations. It's a whole other business. So they took a, they took a leap. They took a perhaps. leap. Anyway. But I think more research is needed. Right. I think if there's anybody out there in the ether who knows anything about this, reach out to us. We want yeah. to find out more. Yeah. So we have one final question for our guests, <laughs> which kind of goes back to our um, our series that we're embarking on, that Carmen and I are embarking on. And the question is this, because you all are kicking off our American relationship and heritage with and horticulture and heritage. How do you think America and horticulture go together like what's the relationship in in a quick sentence or two in your opinion well chuck and i are each looking at each other i think it changes it swings with the time but and i swings with the age but Uh i think plants are so inspiring to people you see plant imagery on fabric you see it on wallpaper you see it in motifs and so it's really part of the fabric of who we are you sometimes don't quite recognize that but it's very important and particularly when you live in cities like in new york there's that famous new yorker cartoon of one tree out in front of somebody's house right spring summer winter and fall right and i think that epitomizes it and thus that people love love nature they it's a bonding place uh-huh. for people to be together outdoor spaces and i think that these places are really about democracy public gardens which are full of plants are about democracy and places 
places for people to gather. Free public space. I, I do. Available I to all. I yeah. believe it. I totally believe it. Yeah. It was like Olmsted and Vox with Central Park. The idea right. was that there was a great mixing ground. And I, you see that in our garden at Queens Botanical Garden right. all the time. Right. Because we do come from different backgrounds, but what we do is they celebrate the commonalities and we celebrate the stories of plants. One time we had a, a program on cacao, the food of the gods. Right. And we got a cacao pod from JFK. They had confiscated it when it came through. <laughs> and, um, it's good to have neighbors. <laughs> but they, they said they said we could borrow it. We just had to bring it back. And there was a man there with his daughter, and he was smiling from ear to ear because he grew up on a cacao plantation right. in the Philippines. Right. And he'd never been able to share this with his daughter. Right. So here we are in Flushing, where the airports are. I mean, the airports right. are the place... It's like the Ellis Island of modern day, right? Yeah. yeah. And we have all of this that started from the Prince Nursery and goes right to this day into the people you see at Queen's Botanical Garden, uh-huh. the place where people, plants, and cultures meet. I go back to Thomas Jefferson. Uh-huh. Thomas Jefferson and our forefathers of our country, our founding fathers, knew the importance of agriculture to build a great nation. A country is only as strong as its soil. It is the 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 citizen farmer was uh, and the educated farmer was primary in Jefferson's philosophy Mm -hmm. that he wanted to make sure that our farmers were educated. They were not peasants. They were not people who to be looked down upon. They were the primary backbone of your country. And he saw that, and it's true, the land-grant colleges that followed mm-hmm. uh, with mm-hmm. our dear Morrill and Mr. Lincoln and so on. Right. These things ha- are, are in, the, in the thread of all things good in America. We love it. Well, that's a great way to that end. That is the perfect <laughs> ending. Yeah. I have one more thing. Yes. <laughs> Today is the new year. Yes. Yeah. Lunar New Year. It's the first time that students are getting off for this new year. It's very important. Uh-huh. And in Flushing is a wash in the color red. And um, it's the year of the monkey. Yeah. I was born in the year of the monkey. Uh-huh. I also have a birthday coming up once every four years on February 29th, <laughs> by the way. And you're wearing red. <laughs> Pays to advertise. But I, I, the custom um, I've learned from our finance director, other people locally, is that you give unmarried children red envelopes. You give them with money. Uh-huh. Now, the woman at the stand where I bought the envelopes this year said, you don't just give one dollar. That's unlucky. But give two or five or ten or twenty. Oh, and Alice and Carmine, you each have a child. Yes. So for you, I have each an envelope. Oh. You have to put in the money, however. Okay. <laughs> okay. No problem. Well, we I will say that. Happy New Year. Gong Foy Hat Choi. Thank you. Well, let me say you have planted the seed mm-hmm. for lots of future gardeners. Yes. With this $5 that I'm going to put in here. I think I'll buy my son a pack of seeds. Yes, and, yes, uh, that's a great thing to continue on. And thank you for all of your good work um, at QBG, and thank you for coming and sharing with us the history um, and for kicking off our uh, series, Heritage and Horticulture. And be sure to plant a tree to commemorate a birth, a death, anything in the family that needs to be commemorated. Plant a tree; yeah, it'll always be there. Yeah, thank, thank you, you guys. Thank you. So thank you for, for listening to Weeding Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, the show was uh, produced by Allison 
Carmen, your fearless host. Um, <laughs> thank you to our sponsor. If you miss any part of the show, please note it's available via archive on the website, heritageradionetwork.org, and via podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Please leave comments and reviews on our yes. Facebook page, Groundworks Inc. We Dig Plants, also on Instagram, Groundworks Gardens NYC, and on Twitter at We Dig Plants. Happy gardening. Thanks for listening. See you in the garden. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.